from Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore. This is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We have a very special episode for you today because just recently here in Maryland, the National Trust for Historic Preservation recognized and listed two historic places in this state as one of the 11 most endangered historic places in all of the United States. And we thought it was important to take a moment aside from our normal interview style podcast to talk a little bit about what all that means. Uh, the the nature of what it means to be endangered, what can come from that, the history of these places, and a little bit more about how you can get involved, because these aren't just Maryland issues. Truly, they are national issues. And so I'm joined today in studio uh, by our faithful stand-in PreserveCast host, Megan Baco, who is here to talk with us a little bit about this. Megan, in her role here as the Director of Communications at Preservation Maryland, does a lot with our own Threatened History Program. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and talk about um, how all of this came together. Um, so, Megan, it's good to be here in studio with you today. Thanks. Thanks for um, having me on. It's interesting to sit across from you. Usually I'm in your seat. So, Nick, when an organization like the National Trust comes to kind of your backyard in Maryland and mentions that these places are endangered, how does Preservation Maryland react to that? So, I mean, we see it as a huge opportunity, and I know I think you agree on this, that it's a fantastic opportunity to highlight issues that are happening all over the state. And it really sort of underscores the need and the value of a statewide or a local preservation partner. Because while the National Trust can sort of shine a spotlight on it, they rely on their local partners to really step up and sort of take it to that next level and ultimately solve whatever challenge is confronting that historic place. Because it's not just about the listing, it's about sort of the follow-through that comes after that listing. The listing specifically uh, for the viewshed around Mount Vernon, which is one of the most endangered projects that was just listed, truly is a multi-state, multi-county, and a national issue. So I see that value in having it come from the National Trust. In terms of the Mount Vernon viewshed, what's happening there? So Mount Vernon, um, for those of you who haven't visited there before, obviously sits in the Commonwealth of Virginia, right along the Potomac, not far from Washington, D.C. Obviously, one of the reasons that George Washington picked the location of Washington, D.C. is that, you know, it was nice and close to home. Uh, And it is just a beautiful part of the river. The river begins to get a little wide there. And sitting across from Mount Vernon, if you were to stand on the east lawn of Washington's Mount Vernon with its big porch, um, you would be looking off into Prince George's and Charles County, Maryland. Um, And, you know, for hundreds of years, that view pretty much remained the same until the mid-20th century in the 1950s, when uh, suburban sprawl begins to make its way out of Washington, D.C., and it begins to threaten that viewshed. And there's also a proposal to have some industrial uses there across from Mount Vernon. And so the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which has preserved and protected Mount Vernon since the 1850s, began to get involved. And they uh, start buying up conservation easements. They work towards the establishment 
of the National Park Unit that is over on that side of the river in Maryland at Akakik um, and Piscataway National Park. Um, and so for over 50 years, they have done a really good job of stewarding that so that if you were to stand on that East Lawn today, the view really is the same as it would have been when Washington was there in the late 18th century. Today, the challenge which confronts that viewshed is that Dominion Energy, which is headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, is proposing to construct a natural gas compressor facility. Um, potentially, we've heard with smokestacks as all as 113 feet, totally visible from the east lawn of Mount Vernon, and completely marring this viewshed, which you know, not only the, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, but the, the, the state of Maryland and people all across the country have spent millions of dollars protecting to this point. Um, so it, it really is a, a critical challenge for Washington's Mount Vernon. I know that the, the association takes it very seriously, and, and Preservation Maryland, for that matter, takes it very seriously, because although the resource, perhaps the primary resource, sits in Virginia, um, of course, they're looking off into Maryland, um, so that view is Maryland, and, you know, vice versa. If you were standing, to stand at Akakik or Piscataway, um, and obviously just hearing those names, you recognize that this isn't just about George Washington. There were people there before this. And so you have native lands there um, that were inhabited for many, many years prior to any Europeans being in this area. So there's a lot of different themes. There's a lot of different pieces. And for many reasons, we're very pleased to see the National Trust list this. So this is one of the big um, moments out of that most recent announcement. This is a great opportunity for Preservation Maryland to work with our partners in Virginia with the folks at Mount Vernon, that we appreciate their work and actually have an opportunity to work together on something with otherwise these these boundaries between states we don't often get to. And so especially with such a harsh threat to this resource, we're really looking forward to seeing what we can add to the coalition uh, for this project at Mount Vernon. Yeah, and I think it, you know, it kind of plays into this point that we've been making more recently, particularly with issues of like watershed management, that, you know, the History and historic preservation doesn't neatly fit into these sort of political and arbitrary boundary lines. So, you know, we think of Mount Vernon as, well, that's a place of Virginia. Well, Mount Vernon's view should extends beyond that. You know, and we think of Akakik and Piscataway as, well, those are places in Virginia and they're, you know, they're different from Mount Vernon. But really, when you look into the, sort of this context of sort of a, a historic ecosystem, they all play into each other. And the challenge often is in a place like this where Preservation Maryland and Preservation Virginia are off doing their own things and aren't kind of paying attention to what's happening on the other side of the river. This gives us that opportunity, um, as you say, to, to take a more regional approach and a bigger approach to what's going on there. And there's a lot to lose if we don't, if we don't fix this. Um, you don't want to have that situation where you look off at the view shed and say, isn't that great? Well, except for that giant natural gas compressor station. And there's a whole range of safety issues associated with these places um, that I know the, the Ladies Association have brought up on, on their website on the Mount Vernon um, main page called Save the View. Um, and, you know, everything from fires to the sound, um, it's, it's all pretty scary. Um, and it's moving natural gas from Cove Point in Maryland um, across the Potomac into Virginia. And so that's the challenge that's confronted. And we're, we're just hoping that Dominion Energy is a good corporate citizen and makes the right decision, recognizes the error of their ways, and abandons this proposal and, and rejects it. Because Washington's legacy, I think, personally, I think a lot of people would agree with me, deserves a whole lot better than this. 
So this listing helps to shine a spotlight on this, gives us an opportunity to work together with our partners. Um, there is an immediate threat to the building of this facility, but this is also could still be considered proactive. We're creating a coalition. We're joining together to work on this. How does Preservation Maryland deal with endangered properties, specifically in Maryland, that we might you know, be aware of, and how do we gather our regional partners together? So we have taken a little different approach um, to just sort of the standard endangered listing. We did that for a number of years. Um, and then back in 2015, um, as you know, we started working on a different kind of project um, because we felt like perhaps we weren't going far enough. And so we created a program called Six to Fix. And what that program envisioned and what it has accomplished to some extent since we did it three and a half years ago is, and started it, I should say, is that we identify um, through an RFP, through an application process, six projects around the state that involve threatened historic resources. And we're pretty broad and open to different types of resources, everything from a threatened landscape to a specific structure. The goal is to try and advance the cause of preservation a little bit there um, by adding capacity, by providing support, by putting in some seed funding, by gathering volunteers, whatever it takes. And each project is going to be different, so there's no one set platform for this. Um, you know, in some respects, it's similar to what the National Trust has done. They have their endangered list, but they also have a program called National Treasures, where they do a little bit more investment of time and resources rather than just the announcement. They kind of, there's some follow through there. And at the state level, that's something that we've been focused on. Um, we didn't have the capacity and the, the bandwidth to continue with both programs, so we sort of selected this one. And uh, we've been pretty pleased with it over the past nearly three years and in, in going into our fourth year next year. Well, I know it's a, a successful program because we work an awful lot on it. And you can always go to 6 fixorg to find out the projects that we're currently working on, ongoing projects. These tend to be long-term projects. Um, I think at the beginning we thought we might be able to uh, cross some of these off. But they've become really wonderful partnerships that we've been happy to carry on. Um, I've been working very closely with some uh, folks that are experts in cemetery conservation. We've worked on a lot of landscapes and individual buildings. So the Six to Fix program is really the way that Preservation Maryland uh, addresses proactively these threatened places in Maryland. Yeah, and the, and the goal is to try and, as you say, be proactive to get to them before there is some type of challenge like this. Um, we have been involved in more advocacy-type issues. Um, one that comes to mind was over on the eastern shore in Kent County, where specific landscapes were threatened by what we felt was incompatible um, large-scale industrial solar energy generation. And, and full disclosure, we're not opposed to solar. I think it's fantastic. Um, and we think it can coexist in historic districts, and there's places for it on farms and all those sorts of things. But when it comes to large-scale industrial solar on beautiful, pristine cultural landscapes protected by conservation easements, we we begin to feel a little weird about that. Um, and we think that there might be better places for that, that our state has a lot of kind of marginal lands, you know, things like landfills and old parking lots and giant big box stores, things like that. And so we began to push for a better approach to that, that perhaps farms aren't the best place to put all these things. Um, so that's an example where we did get a little more advocacy-ish, but as you say, you know, on the cemetery side, that was not really an advocacy issue. That's, you know, hands-on um, and working with folks who are trying to get information out to people on how to take care of historic places. And, you know, of course, you've also worked uh, for a long time since that first year on the Glendale Hospital Project, where 
we're trying to get the redevelopment authority there and their partners in parks to redevelop a historic early 20th and mid 20th century um, hospital campus. It's a tuberculosis um, sanatorium. Um, and that's a incredibly complex project that, of course, couldn't be crossed off in one year, but a little bit of a- ahead of the direct immediate threat curve trying to get to it before then. Glendale is a classic white elephant project. As ambitious as Preservation Maryland is, of course it's going to be a major project. And this was something where we're working with the county, we're working with stakeholders, and it's a wonderful example of Preservation Maryland being able to be kind of this umbrella, in some cases a watchdog, in some cases a cheerleader, in some cases uh, the the person who stands up at a community meeting. Um, So I can see that all of these values are something that... uh, um, that the National Trust's most endangered also brings. It also brings, in terms of what I do, is this great opportunity in terms of communications and advocacy and engagement. Um, when there is this perceived immediate threat, we're going to be able to grab people's attention for a little bit longer than usual. We're going to have a great opportunity to support Mount Vernon's Save the View campaign. We'll have our own petition that's specific to the Maryland properties. And we'll really be able to express to our members and the people who want to be involved in this how important their voice is to these places. Um, We can't do it alone. None of these projects, Six to Fix projects or any Preservation Maryland project happens like that. The rally cry that this type of program creates is really important. I can foresee that the community is going to be very vocal in the second issue that was listed as America's Most Endangered, which is downtown Annapolis, essentially. What's going on there? So in Annapolis, we have a tremendous challenge in that everything that has been done to this date since the really mid part of the 20th century, um, leading up to the establishment of Annapolis as one of the first national historic districts in the entire country, could be upended by a proposal to change the height and bulk restrictions down towards the the waterfront, the city dock area. Um, And in doing so change the makeup, the look of the historic community, change the sight lines between the water and the community itself, between the town and the water. And really at the, at the center of Annapolis's story from the very beginning is water. It, it drives the development of the community from trade, from the slave trade, from the establishment of the Naval Academy, the establishment, you know, before that of the capital itself there. I mean, all of that is driven because of its key location on the water and the connection between the water and this place. And even to this day, water continues to play a critical role, obviously in tourist interest. People like to go to places near water. Um, And sea level rise, it's going to change a lot of things. I mean, water continues to, to play a critical role. No matter, anytime you're there, you know, there, there's some focus on that. And the proposed um, rezoning of this area could upend all of that. It could really change that critical relationship between the community and what brought the community to that place, and that's water. And beyond that, I mean, I think if you, if you do things like that and you start changing height and bulk and putting big boxes of modern construction down at the lower end of the town – you have the the opportunity, and, and not a good opportunity, but it's an opportunity to really change the economic underpinning of that community, which is based on heritage tourism. And what's the one thing we know about heritage tourists? They seek authenticity. 
they don't want modern hotels. They don't want to go down to the, the, the waterfront and just see something brand new. They can do that anywhere, right? No offense to National Harbor, right, near Washington, D.C., but if you want brand new hotels at the water, go there. And you can. And there's a casino, you know, and it's got all these bells and whistles. And yet, for one reason, it can't really compete with a place like Annapolis, and that's the authenticity. Um, that's what's at the heart of this listing is this change, um, which has been proposed. And um, I think the community, rightly so, a number of elected officials are really pushing back against. In discussing how important the water is to Annapolis, Annapolis has been at the forefront of adapting historic cities to climate change. So I know Annapolis just hosted the international conference called Keeping History Above Water. You know, taking a look at some of the renderings of these massive properties, I wonder what effect that would have on all of this really hard, thoughtful, scientific work that has gone into this and that people are looking to Maryland and Annapolis as leaders in this field. There's a bit of a sense that this could be also upturned and that would be the mistake that people look to. Yeah, I mean, I was just just down in Charleston, South Carolina, and the, the good folks at the Preservation Society of Charleston had me down to talk a little bit about what's going on in Maryland with sea level rise and how are we adapting, and everybody's trying to learn from each other because there is no playbook, right? And, and all of the preservation tools that we have don't perfectly mesh with what we're being confronted with, from places like Ellicott City to places like Annapolis. Um, and I think the work that was done there in Annapolis under the leadership of Lisa Craig um, and leading up to things like the Keeping History Above Water Conference has been fantastic. And, and I think the, the word that you said that really hits the, the nail on the head there is thoughtful. It was thoughtful and it was community driven. I mean, community driven to a fault. I mean, just meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, but actually listening to what the community wanted and feeling like they had an opportunity to put their voice in about this and, and be able to um, tell you know, what mattered to them. Um, they did a whole thing on, on what's your view and view sheds that matter and how could this play into sea level rise and all that kind of stuff and came up with some really great foundational core documents that were going to lead the mitigation um, of these impacts that aren't just like, well, they'll happen someday. They're happening now. What hasn't been thoughtful is this proposal sort of came out of nowhere, no public review or process, not transparent. I even if we take preservation out of the mix, just not a good way to get things done in planning, right? If, uh, you know, you want to do good planning, you engage the community. If you want to be Robert Moses and thrust planning on top of people, that's the way to do it. There's two different viewpoints. There's Jane Jacobs, there's Robert Moses. I think we, you and I are probably on the Jacobs side of this. And unfortunately, you will go down in history as the Robert Moses of Annapolis um, if something like this happens. So, Hopefully, they'll be able to turn back to those documents, the planning documents, the charrette documents. Um, and that's kind of the goal of Preservation Maryland getting involved and other partners getting involved is to offer a different opportunity or a different way to say, yes, if, if there are these uh, hospitality needs, there's other ways to accomplish them than marring something that is basically irreplaceable. Right. And we've actually offered, along with other partners, to throw some funds in to bring the Urban Land Institute out to do a couple days uh, worth of looking at how could they meet the needs, are there needs, first off, let's ask that, that true question, are there needs for more hotels? And if there are, which there may be, um, then how do we meet those needs? How do short-term rentals play into this? Are short-term rentals making the community more livable? Would this make the community more livable? What does this do to the people who are living there? 
um, you know, a real challenge that these historic communities are facing, whether it be Charleston, Savannah, Annapolis, Nashville, um, is that people are loving them to death. And because of that, the people who work there, the people who bring you your drink, who clean up, who are doing the prep work in the kitchen, they can't afford to live there. And so is that a real community? Is that And so to that extent, is that really where government should be focusing its efforts on bringing in more hotel development or should they be focusing on and keeping it historic communities affordable? These are big, weighty, challenging issues. Um, but I think the spotlight being put on Annapolis by the National Trust for Historic Preservation gives us the environment to begin asking those questions. Um, and it alerts people to the fact that oh boy, this isn't good. You know, the leading national preservation group, the statewide, the local group, local elected officials are all locked arms saying, not this. And perhaps this is an opportunity for us to take a step back and look at, but instead this. And I think that that's the best case scenario for what can come out of this. So, you know, as you mentioned with Mount Vernon, we're also launching a petition on this. You can go to presmd.org slash Annapolis and people who live in Annapolis and people who just like Annapolis and visited it, whether they be Marylanders or Michiganders, um, can sign this petition. Um, because, you know, the, Annapolis isn't just important to the story of Maryland. It's important to the story of the United States. So this is probably the first of many discussions that Preservation Maryland is going to have about this about these two very important issues. All of the information, if I'm doing my job, is on presmd.org, on our Facebook page, especially the petitions. Um, we will be sure to let our members know exactly how they can help. Um, always feel free to reach out to us um, to ask questions because we hope that this will be part of more conversations in the future. Absolutely, and and I would say to the PreserveCast listeners out there, um, Feel free to join Preservation Maryland. Even if you live outside the state, we'd love to have you as a member. Your membership supports the work that we're doing here. Just got back from a regional conference of all the preservation partners around the country. And PreserveCast is, is an opportunity for us to shine a light on the good work of our partners. So you've been hearing more about that. Just recently, we talked to folks from New Orleans and Buffalo. So we really are trying to take this um, to be sort of a, a national spotlight on the preservation movement, even though just for today, we digress for a moment and talk about some endangered properties here in Maryland. But I would also say to those PreserveCast listeners listening, if you have an endangered property in your community, if there's something going on that you want us to hear about, reach out, shoot us an email at podcast at presmd.org uh, and let us know. And maybe we can get you on and talk with you about what's threatened, what's endangered, and what you're doing about it in your community. But really the big takeaway here is that this national spotlight matters and it's letting people know about issues that matter, but more to the point that their voice is all that's going to be that's there to sustain these places. Um, that it can't be just Preservation Maryland and the National Trust. We critically need the support of every citizen out there who cares about these places. Um, and so hopefully the big takeaway is that if there's a place like this in your backyard, you'll get engaged as well. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Like a
and in partnership with the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Our website is made possible by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. This week's podcast was produced and engineered by Rich Grouser. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. And most importantly, thank you for listening and preserving.